And so it is that Peter, James, and John journey with Jesus up a mountain. And there, to their great astonishment, Jesus is transfigured before them. Which is to say, his appearance takes on a heavenly radiance, and his clothes dazzle with luminous glory. And thus, for the briefest of moments, Jesus assumes the eternal nature that will become his nature in full come his resurrection from the dead. Now, the disciples don't know this yet, of course. At this point, they know nothing about his impending crucifixion and resurrection. But nonetheless, that is what this is for them. It is a foretaste of glory divine, as the hymn puts it. A momentary glimpse of how things will one day permanently be. And so, quite understandably, the disciples are blown away by what they see. They're mesmerized by it, awestruck, terrified in the most wondrous and welcome ways, inspired. In response to which, Peter says to Jesus, it is good for us to be here. Let me set up tents for this. It is good for us to be here. Let me set up tents. I want us to pay really close attention to this part. It is good, Peter says. Therefore, let me set up tents, dwelling places. You see, Peter beholds this mesmerizing reality. And he rightly recognizes how holy and how good it is. And he is therefore rightly inspired by it. And thus, he wants to frame it and freeze it and make it permanent. Let me make tents for this. Yet all of that being so, no sooner has Peter said as much to Jesus then the transfigured Jesus before him turns back into the same mundane rabbi whom he's been following now these three years. A holy moment has indeed occurred, but no sooner has it occurred than things have gone right back to the way they were before. Leading me now to a word on that holy moment that had just occurred. Or more particularly, on how apropos Peter's words were to describe that moment. It is good, Peter said of it. It is good. Now this may sound like nothing more than a simple description of the circumstance, which in one respect it most certainly is. But beyond that, there is a much richer history of meaning underneath the words, it is good. For as you will recall, it is good was the blessing spoken by God over all of creation in Genesis chapter 1. It is good was the divine acknowledgement that things on earth are precisely the way they are supposed to be. Thus, 
it is good harkens backward to creation as it was before it was broken and, and follow me here, points forward to its restoration as envisioned by the Old Testament prophets. It was good then. And people of faith believe it will be good in the future. As it should be. In alignment. It is good, Peter said, of this holy moment. And he was right to say this. For this was indeed a moment of goodness. A foretaste of how things will be once creation has been redeemed and restored. Peter was right to say it is good. But then Peter said of this goodness, let me make a tent for this. And in so doing, Peter tried to freeze a foretaste of eternity and capture it in the here and now present. Theologians refer to this very human tendency represented here by Peter wanting to freeze this holy moment as overrealizing the coming kingdom as overrealizing it. Which is to say, this is what theologians call it when we, as human beings, see or achieve something righteous and holy and then decide that we can capture or engineer and make permanent such holiness on earth ourselves. Usurping God's role, that is, as the one who will ultimately usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. To over-realize the kingdom is to experience foretastes and fragments of the coming kingdom. It is to witness things like the hungry being fed, the oppressed being liberated, the sick being made whole. It is to see such divine transfigurations of the broken present. For, make no mistake, such things are fleeting examples of this world being transfigured. But it is to then believe that with enough human effort and will and faithfulness, we can extend and manipulate and manufacture and make permanent those foretastes. It is to believe that we, if rightly banded together as human beings, if becoming a pure human collective, if becoming a true brotherhood and sisterhood of man and woman, that we then can usher in God's kingdom on our own human accord, here in this same historical continuum. Again, this is called over-realizing the kingdom. And yes, I know I'm getting a bit pedantic at this point, but the upshot to all of this is a very important theological clarification. Which is that for us as followers of Jesus, two things are true at once. We do experience foretastes of God's coming kingdom in this current broken state of creation. In fact, we are called to help make possible and bring about such foretastes of the kingdom. But even so, we can't on our own bring about 
the kingdom. The point here being this, dear family. I often encourage us to build for God's kingdom, endeavoring to make it more on earth as it is in heaven. Just about every Sunday from this pulpit I do that, and I will never stop encouraging us to do that, for this is indeed the mandate that is given to us as Jesus followers. But there is all the difference in the world between building for God's kingdom and building God's kingdom. And the history of the Christian church, particularly since the 19th century, beseeches us to recognize and be able to understand and distinguish the difference. So follow me on this. We are right to work for and to extol the goodness of new medicines that treat heretofore untreatable illnesses. We are right to work for and to extol new social arrangements that bring about greater levels of equity and equality. We are right to work for and to extol all efforts that result in greater peace and justice in the world. For such things and so many like them are indeed good. And not just good descriptively, but good in the sense that they foreshadow and point toward the coming day when such realities will be the permanent state of things. But that said, such experiences... Such examples of here and now goodness are but here and now transfigurations of a broken and fallen world that can't be finally and fully realized and transformed until God, at the last, resurrects them and makes all things new. Until then, the moment that we try to make such things final... their transfigured shine will inevitably quickly fade away and they will become yet one more fleeting, finite thing in this fallen world. So yes, we are indeed called to make this broken world ever more as it is in heaven. I will never stop saying that. We are indeed called to be God's co-creators of a redeemed, transformed tomorrow. We are indeed called to bend things as best we can in the here and now into ever greater alignment with the coming kingdom. And we can't just sit on our laurels as disciples as so many Christians do, resting content with the knowledge and the belief that God will in the end bring things about via a mighty work from without. We can't just do that, for the entire biblical witness cries out that God will use our righteous acts in the here and now as the raw materials from which and through which he will fashion that eternal glory which is to come. But we also must not overrealize God's kingdom in the here and now either arrogating to ourselves the capacity to usher in the kingdom on our own, which is a mighty and perennial temptation for us as Christians with a long and tragic history. And so then the point of this sermon is simply to say that when we consider, as we did last week, 
and as we do quite often, and most pointedly, as we will do in sustained fashion over the next six Sundays in Lent in our sermon series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. When we consider the very Christian call to perform kingdom acts now as if the kingdom were already here, We must heed that call as if the future of God's kingdom depends on it, yes, but we must simultaneously acknowledge with utter humility that at best these kingdom acts of ours, when blessed by the Holy Spirit, bring about but momentary kingdom transfigurations, which is to say flickers of goodness that do indeed point toward that eternal goodness which is to come but flickers of goodness that even if taken all together still pale in comparison with that which God has in store for the restoration of all things. Eyes have not seen nor have ears beheld the glory for which God has prepared for this world. So yes, let us endeavor to make things more on earth as they are in heaven. For the world outside these doors beckons us as Christians through the power of God's Spirit to try our best to aid in transfiguring its brokenness however we can. But that said, the gospel of our Lord likewise reminds us that we ought not to ever start trying to build tents around that which we see transfigured. In short, dear family, on this Transfiguration Sunday, in anticipation of our Lenten series coming up next week, let us remember that while we can build for God's kingdom, while we must build for God's kingdom, we can never build God's kingdom. Because that's for God to do. Taking that which we do and breathing upon it in the first, as he did at the beginning. The work we do here now is good, but it is only provisional, never final. Kingdom come, meanwhile, will not only be final, but it will finally be on earth as it is in heaven. And when that reality arrives, not only will it be good, but it will be very good. And as Genesis 1 reminds us, that which is very good can only be fashioned by the one who fashioned it that way in the beginning. And all God's people said, Amen.